Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and this week I'm joined by Matt Hughes, Tom Dart, and broadcasting from the Great Northeast, George Calkin. Today we'll be discussing Manchester United's comeback at Upton Park and also Arsenal's draw with Blackburn. We'll also be debating the merits of a national under-21 side playing in the Football League. What's that all about? So join us for 40 minutes or so of the best football conversation you'll hear all week, at least from me. Okay, so there was a point on Saturday when Manchester United were losing 2-0 at West Ham and uh, the chasing pack were no doubt all watching on television when I think we all thought, game on. Boy, were we wrong. Uh, Matt, when you're 2-0 down and you come back to win 4-2 and you, you come back begin sort of half an hour from time and you haven't been playing well and you still get the three points, is this the intangible quality that we define as the stuff of champions? I think it is, and also it's the stuff of Manchester United. They've done it for years and years under Fergie. I was at Blackpool a couple of months ago. They were 2-0 down, playing terribly. Somehow scored three goals in, I think, 14 minutes to win to win 3-2. Um, and they've, they've done it again and again. A couple of years ago, they were losing at home to Villa. A little kid called Makeda came on. No one had ever heard of him turn the game and that they were champions that year as well so it just goes to show that in, in the big games that they really can um, get the result when, need, when needed George do you, I mean I, I, I like to be sort of analytical and, 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 and rational um, wherever possible rational uh, <laughs> I, 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 I like to think so okay but I mean, Hughes just said there that this is what United do over and over again. Is, is, is there a pattern there, or is it just that actually is it just coincidence and we just remember when United do it, but we don't remember when other teams do it? No, I mean, I, I think there is. I mean, they've done it in so many sort of big occasions as well as sort of during routine matches. I mean, I, th- I think if there's anything slightly different about the game on Saturday is that they were actually playing pretty well from from what I saw but when, when going... 2-0 down and probably more importantly West Ham looked looked pretty awful so I don't think there was I don't think it was one of these sort of force of nature comebacks that goes against the grain I think they you know they just played played the way they were do carried on and sort of kept calm and, and got there it wasn't sort of a last minute winner I think they just played I just you know I think they just carried on how they were doing and, and got the result they they deserved but no it's it is ingrained in them this um you know this sort of mentality that this this you, what you do is you win, and um, you know you can sort of look at other teams around the division at the moment, some at the top, some at the bottom, who who have sort of have the opposite, and it does become part of that history and heritage and part of the character, and um, you know it's it's not sort of it's not a made up quality, it's there and it's in abundance. Hey, Tom. Um I agree with George actually that West Ham were playing pretty badly despite being 2 0 up. But that said, you're 2 0 up at home. There's half an hour ago. When you let a lead like that slip, do you deserve to stay in the Premier League? Well, West Ham's defending has been their biggest problem of the season. Despite the England international there. Yeah. Yeah, of course, several if you up Sanan Green. Uh, Charitably not counting Bridge. But no, that's, that's, not count, that's not counting Bridge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think they just buckled under the pressure. Rooney scored a fantastic goal. Uh, presumably United got the hairdryer at half time. Fergie chucked on a couple of strikers, so it was all out attack in the second half. Uh, redoubled their efforts and I think any team would struggle to withstand that let alone a team with such uh, unconvincing defenders as West Ham and uh, there was also a dubious penalty when uh, Fabio's uh, 
pass hit Upson's arm, which which shouldn't have been a penalty. So the United did get help there as well, and and that Giggs uh, kind of mishit cross for the last goal as well, which was uh, perhaps a bit fortunate. So United had a little bit of luck, but they also did make their luck with uh, the force, which yeah, any team would have struggled to withstand that, not just uh, West Ham. Matt, uh, Tom mentioned uh, Wayne Rooney there. Obviously, um, I, I'm on the record saying this is at the end uh, his worst season since coming to Old Trafford, and, and obviously he's had a whole raft of off the pitch issues, which also made it difficult uh, difficult for him. Uh, but he's been playing better in in the last month or so uh, because we in the media are obsessed with finding turning points. Um, is the hat trick a turning point, or was it a turning point maybe a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I was, just, I, was just, I was impressed the way he played against Marseille in the Champions League a couple of weeks ago, where he, where he used the ball and brought others into play. And actually, unlike on Saturday, he kept his kept his kept his head in uh, quite a tense uh, situation. So he's been getting better for some time. It's sometimes quite easy to um, identify certain turning points, but I think when you've had a, a serious injury and various other problems, the form doesn't just click back. It's, you've got to work, work at it, and he's, he's been doing that, and hopefully will continue to improve throughout the remainder of the season. George, uh, a lot of people complain that you know we should have been celebrating Rooney's hat trick and blah, 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 but instead it gets, it's going to get overshadowed by the fact that he swore into a camera after his goal. Now, um... I, I tried not to overshadow it, but um, I guess we need, do need to talk about it. Um, what's your what's your take on on this? I mean, I, I guess it's the kind of broad philosophical question that you know even my hairdresser could answer with with one way or another. Um, but we, footballers obviously get paid a lot of money. I don't want to get into the whole role model argument, but is there a mo- is there a moment in time when you know we can say, look? If you're going to swear on the pitch when nobody notices except for the referee and your teammates, that's your business. But you know that there's a camera there. You know you're running to the camera. You know the camera has a mic. Please don't do this. And if you do this, we will punish you. Well, I feel, I mean, it's, I mean, I get kind of quite angry about things like this. I mean, if, if on the one hand, you know, there's, there's a move in football to have microphones right next to the pitch cameras get in you know we want to see things in 3d we want to see things in incredible high definition uh pictures so on and so forth and then we complain when people do things or say things that we don't sort of like and you know wayne we've talked a little bit about wayne rooney he's had a difficult season he's just got a hat trick that um you know arguably will be responsible for man united winning the title he's had an you know emotional moment within 10 15 seconds a camera gets stuck right in his face and you know he kind of explodes in an emotional and passionate way and yes he's obviously sort of stepped over the line a little bit but i i'm not entirely sure what we're supposed to expect from him and um you know he he's he's apologized straight afterwards i think that's fair enough and i i think at that point we we should move on really um you know, it's important that our stadiums are safe places and that there's no kind of prejudice whatsoever. But I don't want them to be sort of sanitised places as well. Uh, you know, supporters chant fairly robust things from the st- from the stand. Uh, you know, in every every game we're at, um, it should be passionate. It should be emotional. Swearing is 
part of a rich language that we have. I'm not saying I'm not saying that um, it's acceptable in, in all its forms, but I, I do think this is a case of um, you know let's let's get on and talk about talk about something else. Except not now, obviously, because we're going to carry on talking about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm afraid we will. I, I always get struck by, you know, people who, who make the women and children, people who are, you know, sort of offended and, and, and shocked by this language. And, and, and I, I take George's, you know, point on board. Um, my kids aren't old enough to go to football, but if they were, I would kind of explain to them that, you know, you will hear you know this language and it's because people get emotional but it's not really appropriate language to be using and you i would imagine that as a parent that's how you handle it um uh, matt you're you're a parent um although i imagine you know you probably don't have experience with kids old enough to go to football yet but is should we she's been oh to huddersfield oh yeah oh (laughs) 12 12 weeks it's 12 weeks what would you make of the industrial language? Well, she was 12 weeks. She's not me back since. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, I think, I, like it or not, bad language is a part of football. So I don't think you can castigate Wayne Rooney for um, using language that probably 50, 60% of the people in the stadium would, would, would also be using. But there's a difference, though, is that, you know, I, I'm not in the stadium. Wayne Rooney's in my living room. I mean, I think that's the obvious counter-argument you make, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, true, and he should try and temper his behaviour accordingly, but he doesn't choose to uh, have the cameras that close to him, that, that close to the action. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, but I think it's not helped by the Premier League last week coming out and trying to make, make a political point. Uh, I was talking to someone from them on Friday, and they were saying they were going to encourage referees to show yellow cards for bad language and for aggressive behaviour just in the course of the game. <laughs> for them to say that and then for Ryan Rooney to do what he's done a day later um, puts the FA in quite a difficult position if they're almost condemning it if they don't do anything so it's because of the personality involved and how how well known he is it's, it's almost a political issue that's taken on more significance than it deserves really I love, I love the fact that he was actually trying to have a conversation with an inanimate object as well I mean I thought that was I mean I thought that was quite impressive what? What a camera? <laughs> Come on! Yeah, I, I was I, I was rather impressed by that, and which also made me think there was a bit of, of, of some kind of maybe of, of, of play acting there. Kind of, I mean, we're at a different person, and not the way Wayne Rooney's been lampooned. I'd kind of feel like he was in on some kind of you know meta joke that he was playing on the population. Although, you know, given that Wayne Rooney presents himself a certain way, you kind of wonder that you know maybe he wasn't. Maybe it is as, as George says, he was having a conversation with an inanimate object, but. Um, Tom, since I'm assuming nobody's going to stick up for the moralizers here, um, I, I, I guess I'm going to have to and play devil's advocate for a minute. Um, TV money pays, if not the bulk, a big chunk of Wayne Rooney's wages. He is an actor in a TV drama, and he benefits financially um, from this tremendously. Uh, if he didn't want the cameras there, he could go off and you know play for a play non-league football or something um, but because he's part of this spectacle and the TV broadcasters argue that part of the way we sell the spectacle for so much money money which then goes back to Wayne Rooney and other professional footballers is by having the high definition cameras and the, and, and the mics at pitch side and everything and really bringing that experience to, to the people um, 
otherwise we would just have one camera up high and and and, and that would be that nobody would have any idea what the people are saying but then Wayne Rooney probably would be making 130 grand a week or however much he makes um do they have a case there? I mean, can they argue that they're somehow indirectly Wayne Rooney's employers and therefore demand that Rooney or any other footballer not swear into the camera and if he does, then be punished? I think so, yeah. I think uh, given the amount of money they put into the game, that gives them a lot of uh, a lot of power. We all know they can move the fixtures around more or less at will. So uh, clearly I think uh, if this kind of thing suddenly becomes a problem for the TV companies uh, and they find that their, their, their own brands, their own reputation and their own audience is being damaged by the behaviour of footballers, then clearly they will get involved at a, a higher extent. It's quite interesting that sort of the, the, you know, the, the incredible pulling power and power that TV has and you know we, we all work in the media so we have a sort of part to play in this as well but you get you get sort of far more stories from what managers say or what players do on the pitch but you know from what managers say directly after games in the first sort of few minutes when they're kind of full of adrenaline and, and, and emotion and actually you probably get a lot more respect in football if you said to managers right you're not allowed to say anything for an, for an hour I mean, it'd be horrible for newspaper deadlines, and it would be obviously be completely hopeless for, for TV. But take a step back, think about it for an hour, and then when you come out and talk about the game, you're going to be much more reasoned, and um, a lot of the time, anyway, you'll be much more reasoned and sort of uh, reflective, and you, you would maybe get a, a much more kind of reasoned and reflective media discussion I'm, of the I'm game not, in the process. I'm not so sure about that, George. Uh, often managers don't turn up until about an hour afterwards. No, uh, anyway, but, and but sort of flash, flash quotes on television. You know, we saw Arsene Wenger after the Barcelona <coughs> game, um, you know, a week or a week or so ago, and so, same with Van Persie doing it. Doing it then. If you actually sort of take a step back, um, you know, take a step back, see the referee if you want. I mean, no, I, I agree. In 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 some times of um, you know, when there's been controversial decisions, managers are going to say controversial things. But um, anyway, but, you know, I do think that we have this sort of move for things to be quicker and instant and flash quotes and everything like that. And I do think that sort of piles more pressure on everybody connected to the game. Matt, obviously this uh, this comeback, you know, is a kind of thing that, that sort of generates enthusiasm and, and adrenaline. Uh, can it also make uh, the difference for United in, in their midweek clash with uh, Chelsea in the Champions League? Um, I wouldn't have thought so. I think these teams are both so experienced and successful over a number of years that um, they're big enough and mature enough to view these matches as standalone fixtures, really. I don't think that either team will take any momentum. United are probably going to win the league, yet Chelsea beat them at Stamford Bridge three weeks ago and also beat them at Old Trafford last year. Um, so you can argue both ways. I think it's a fairly boring, obvious answer, but I think the best team will probably win. <laughs> Moving on to Arsenal and Blackburn, and, and Matt, and kind of related to this very point, um, I'm quoting now from Alison Rudd's piece, uh, where she quotes Arsene Wenger as, as saying, uh, basically, that Arsenal are at a disadvantage um, this season. And uh, he says, and I quote, there's a lot of things going on that I don't want to talk about. I've been here for 15 years and I know how things work. So I want to be completely neutral like I have to be because I'm not involved in any decision. I don't decide the schedule. You should ask the people who make the schedule. If you look, when do we play? We play every game from now until the end of the season on a Sunday. 
um, his basic point is that Arsenal play after Manchester United, um, although except for next week, um, I guess when they play before them, and also May 1st when they play each other, so they're actually playing at the same time, unless United starts slowly, which is a different issue. Um, but I, when it comes to this, I mean, it's, 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 does Wenger also fall into this camp? I mean, is this kind of thing that, like, if you were, you know, Ivan Gazidis, you'd maybe take Wenger aside and say, listen, Arsenal, please, you're intelligent, you wear glasses, please cut this out because this isn't helping? Well, he should, really, didn't it? Because on, on Saturday, he sounded like a, a desperate man trying to clutch at a straw and seizing at any excuse he can, he can think of to explain the fact that it looks like it's going to be another year before Arsenal win a trophy. It's going to be six years in May. Um, will they be saying 10th anniversary memorabilia to you know record their last uh, their last trophy win in, in four years' time? At the moment, you, you wouldn't bat it back against it because they're a very they're a very accomplished team, but they look like they're the sort of team that can finish third or fourth every year, but but not much else. Well, what I don't get though is that, I mean, Arsenal have not beaten uh, a top-flight team. No disrespect to Leighton Orient, since February 23rd when they beat Stoke one nil. Um, that's across all competitions. I mean, that's awful for a team that's second in the table, isn't it? It's, it's bad, but there are factors to explain it. They were on a good run, and then they had that period. Of seven days where they had the second leg against Barcelona and then a trip to Old Trafford in the FA Cup um, and that very intense period obviously the Colour Cup final as well prior to that that very intense period has clearly taken its toll it went badly and they've been unable to recover um, and I think now despite the fact that they're still United's closest challenges it doesn't look like they're going to put up much of a much of a fight you know, none of the sort of teams at the top of the table have really kind of come on this season and in most cases have probably declined a little bit. Man United, if you look at their most important players, you've got Vidic, Van der Sar, you know, one of the strikers up front. Chelsea, I know, have been sort of disappointing, but they still have that spine. And Arsenal are just not strong enough there. They don't have... They don't have the players, in my opinion, to fall back on when things go against them, not just for one game, but for two or three games in a row. The keeper's not good enough. They haven't got a commanding, commanding centre-half. Fabregas has been injured for half the season. And Van Persie hasn't played enough games. So all the way through the middle of the team, they haven't had people that they can, that they can rely upon um, to, to sort of dig results dig results out. I mean, it's, it's, that, this isn't a blinding statement it's a statement of the obvious but um you know it has to be it surely has to be addressed i think it's quite instructive that probably maybe nasri but i would say arsenal's best player this season has been jack wilshire who is 19 year old yeah although a very talented 19 year old boy you shouldn't be relying on a 19 year old to, to win you the premier league if you are you're gonna you're gonna have problems um, Tom, uh, do you want to take the devil's advocate position that, you know, while it's easy to pick on Arsenal, the fact is they play the best football in the Premier League and even in this game against Rovers, while they weren't really good, they took a million shots on goal at 110% of the possession and um, basically, you know, Steve Keane, for all his uh, Portuguese pedigree, basically laid out a team that, you know, put 10 guys in the box. Do you want to argue that point? 
Yeah, you can argue that because it's true. I mean, it's true. It's true every week, and it's true every season. Well, but they deserve to win every week, but they're unlucky because people are uber defensive. It, no, that they create a lot of chances, play really exciting attacking football, and uh, miss a load of chances as well, and are always one of the teams you would want to watch. But for Arsenal fans, and for for those of us who would like to see Arsenal become genuine, proper bona fide contenders not not pretenders who, who fade every every spring it's uh, it's becoming a bit wearisome i think this this season perhaps the the loss to birmingham city in the carling cup final has uh, was so traumatic it's kind of set off an avalanche and in six weeks they're more or less out of every every trophy now every competition which uh, uh, is is devastating perhaps it'll change wenger's uh, attitude uh, in the summer when he when he buys, uh, he buys some new players. Perhaps not. Uh, it's just Wenger's stubbornness uh, is, is perhaps one of the source, one of the things that frustrates us most. He, for someone so smart, so brilliant, he doesn't seem to recognise what everyone else is shouting at him. Doesn't seem to accept that, and so he's kind of doomed to repeat these disappointing mistakes uh, year after year. Matt, did you do you get the sense that a few years ago maybe Wenger was different? Maybe he was. Um, a bit less stubborn. I mean, statistically, I, I was surprised to find his current, even as most footballers get bigger and, and heavier, his current Arsenal side, his best 11, are substantially smaller and lighter than uh, um, than the team that, uh, that that won the double back in 97-98. I, do you get the sense that he's become more stubborn and maybe he doesn't have a, a figure like David Dean who, you know, who he respected football-wise and who maybe could sometimes keep him in check or at least have a dialogue with him uh, at the club anymore? Well, it's certainly true that he doesn't have... There is no one, no one at Arsenal on the board who um, can engage in the debate of Arsene Wenger about the sort of players they're signing. In my view, that's um, probably sometimes it's a good thing. We bemoan the fact that Chelsea, Roman Abramovich and whichever of his... Russian friends he's talking to that week signed the players and Arsenal <laughs> you've, got a, you've got a football man running the show uh, I think the, the pivotal moment in the, the modern history of Arsenal is, is the decision to build the Emirates Stadium it's great success off the pitch but on it since then they took the view to go down the path of um, developing their own players and Wenger's view is that you don't sign 24 to 30 year olds because you'll block um, the path of the players they've spent so much time and, and money uh, trying to develop um, my view would be it would be, it would be worth it if it was to deliver a couple of trophies but he is adamant that, that they will not sign even very good players at the age rates they'll only sign exceptional players and obviously exceptional players are difficult to find hence in, he signs players like Squalacci and relies on Johan Jury to play at centre back um, I think it's misguided, but those are the principles in which in which you decide to operate. I want to dedicate a, a word to to Blackburn, and I'd, I'd like George to tell us about it, since I'm sure he's uh, been following the situation very, very closely. When, when you look in a crystal ball, what do you see? Um, well, I see a very opaque future. I mean, uh, I, I guess after a you know a very a very difficult run of results, they've um, you know they did very well to come back from from two goals down against Blackpool. They've just you know uh, held held Arsenal. So sort of short term, 
their position looks looks a lot more a lot more sturdy. Beyond that, you know, we it's very difficult to kind of make any sort of judgment because the the new owners have um, uh, have come in, changed things very quickly, and you know we simply don't know what they're going to be doing uh, in the summer. Uh, you know, providing they do stay up. Um, uh, you know, they've got a young manager. It's very difficult to see what strategy they've got from from buying the club in the first place i mean you can you can make that observation about a lot of clubs in the premier league of course with their owners but the motivation behind it isn't entirely clear and you know i don't know where they i don't know where they go from here they're always going to have a limited um sort of fan base in their in their in their hometown because it's a small it's a small hometown they're competing in the northwest with some huge football clubs and um you know winning the championship is is nigh on you know nigh on impossible the top six is very very difficult it'd be it, but it's going to be fascinating i think we're going to see some very very interesting stories come out of blackburn in the summer simply because there's been such a sort of there's been tainted by a little bit of um craziness so far so i think it's going to be it's going to be an interesting one to watch all right, now with our debate this week, we're going to get a little bit wacky. So I'd like you all to take a little bit of a leap of an uh, of imagination. Um, there, there's a proposal, and something like this exists in other sports and in other countries as well. But um, for the first time, um, uh, a, a footballing power is really taking a look at this, um, and it's that uh, in Italy there's a proposal by the FA to basically create. Um, a team of of players eligible for the under twenty one cycle, players who would who would come on loan um, from uh, from other clubs on a voluntary basis, and uh, and and basically play a season either in the second or or, or third tier um, of Italian football. Uh, the idea would be, I guess it would be something like you know turning Lillishaw into um, into a professional team or what Lillishaw used to be. Um, get a number of your best players who maybe uh, struggle to find playing time um, and allow them to grow together. And uh, the evidence cited is that uh, when uh, when Mr. Peter Crouch was, I think, 18 or 19 years old, um, he was at Spurs. Spurs thought that he was a big, tall freak who was rubbish and who couldn't play, and they sold him uh, to QPR for, I think, 50 or, or 100 grand, um, but mainly because they didn't have the time or the opportunity to develop him and he was getting too old to, to, to give him a proper contract um, and so maybe a, a guy like Peter Crouch might have been somebody who, who would not have fallen through the cracks if at youth level there'd been uh, a place for him to play um, George I, I, I want to start with you um, I think Newcastle a few years ago if I'm not maybe 12 years ago they got rid of their reserve team if I'm not mistaken yeah um I mean, there's no indication it's going to happen. That's going to happen again. Uh, getting rid of reserve teams, but uh, is it, do you see a case with maybe clubs becoming less patient with players in that sort of 19 to 21 um, age bracket? And could could something like this offer a solution? Well, I mean, to answer the, the first point, I mean, it's you know, Tottenham. You know, if we, uh, there were specific reasons why Newcastle got rid of the reserve team. That was because at the time there was a directive that a certain amount of games had to be played on 
the sort of home stadium. So in that case, St James's Park and Kevin Keegan, it was a very short-sighted move, but Kevin Keegan rejected that, and that was why they why they did that. I mean, so was this a directive from the league? It was at the time, yeah. That I, I don't know whether it's fifty percent or or, or it's kind whatever. Of but well, who are they to go tell the clubs what to do with the reserve teams? Yeah, 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 but. You know, the, the thing is, when where Tottenham, Tottenham, there's a couple of points where Tottenham were in their in their uh, history when Crouch came through. Um, you know, the, the 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 problem for all the young players at, at the kind of the bigger teams is that they have to find a way through some really really good players, and that's uh, you know that's always going to be a that's always going to be a struggle. There isn't this sort of uh, there isn't necessarily a direct route to the team. That's why clubs like you know, Manchester United, particularly Arsenal, dispatch their players out on loan to either other Premier League clubs and football league clubs and let them grow and develop there. And that's that's supposedly the point of the system. And you look at somebody like Danny Welbeck at Sunderland who's wouldn't get, you know, presumably wouldn't wouldn't get anywhere near the United team this season but has done done very well at Sunderland, thrived and um if he does go back this summer he will be going back a far more complete, rounded fo- footballer and the system should be doing you know the system should be doing that. I mean, I'm, not, you know, obviously I want the England team to do well and the under-21 team to do well, but I'm very, um, uh, I have to say, my sort of instincts are sort of to be against a system which, you know, turns our sort of heritage and, and league format on its head. You know, it's about it's about local teams and that represent towns and cities it's about history it's about our sporting culture and to kind of artificially put a club uh, you know a sort of invented club in there to um, to do what the system should be doing in the first place and I admit it's not always successful I'm you know I'm not I would be very I would be uh, very cautious about yeah, the, the, Matt. That is the price you play. You you pay. You know, you, you lose. Um, you lose. I guess in some ways, even the competitive integrity of of of, of the division that, that that would host this sort of, you know, center of excellence uh, FA or whatever you want to call it. But I wanted to ask you about George's point about the loan system. I mean, when it works, great. You know, the guy gets experience and he grows. But I think what what sometimes happens is. Well, two things. One is you loan a guy to a team for a player. If it was, I'll take that again. Uh, but what sometimes happens is, is this: you know, you, you loan a player to a team for a season, and you know maybe the the manager changes, or or the new guy doesn't really like him. Um, maybe he doesn't get the training that you expect or the medical attention you expect. Maybe he just gets overlooked. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, and and ultimately the club that takes him on loan often doesn't really have an incentive. Uh, to develop the player as well, especially if it's you know a slightly more marginal player or, or maybe more of a late bloomer than say than say Danny Welbeck. Um, are, are you satisfied that the, that the loan system does enough? Or is there any way that it can be improved? I think the loan system generally works fairly well and, and can suit both parties. I think it needs to be um, tweaked in in so much that a player should go on loan for the whole season or maybe half a season and you could have a break in the January transfer window I don't like these these situations where players move back and forth and back and forth and it's not quite clear who's looking after the players best interests and if even if there are sort of 
malign reasons for exploiting the system whereby you, you recall a player so you can't play against some of your rivals and things, things like that. Uh, I mean, you talked about Welbeck. I think Jack Wilshere is one player who clearly benefited from playing at Bolton for the last four months of last season and has come back a completely different player. So I think it can work and it's um, a, a structure that enables the... Um, the league system to exist in its current kind of organic form I would resist meddling with it in what is admittedly quite an interesting proposal I think the great strength of the English game is club structure and its strength in depth that's why there were 40,000 people watching Brentford Carlisle at Wembley yesterday uh, and to, tamp, to tinker with that for something that might produce more players is a is a huge risk and I would say it's, it's too big a price to pay Tom? Yeah, I agree to uh, uh, tamper with the integrity of the Football League and the uh, and disrespect clubs who strive for promotion by plunking uh, some kind of you know, Harlem Globetrotters with acne style uh, all- teenage all-star team into uh, into whichever division just uh, and then have this artificial club uh, basically exist to benefit the Premier League while being in the Football League uh, presumably it couldn't get uh, promoted all the way so you'd have it's issues to benefit with integrity England there. not the Premier League England I think the loan system is fine as it is absolutely fine as it is and I don't think uh, there's any need to uh, tamper with it and all, all you'd find anyway is uh, a team full of 18 or 19 year olds would end up getting bullied off the ball and harried and physically intimidated by the uh, stronger older wiser uh, sides in the football league so I think it would uh, not help the best way is for Premier League talent to go into smaller Premier League teams or the championship and then they can uh, develop alongside experienced players uh, and get an understanding of a winning mentality from by learning from clubs who who really need to win and desperate to win rather than uh, I mean what what you also want is for clubs themselves I mean further down further down the chain to sort of take or you know have the time to take their academies their youth teams of seriously, I mean, there's, a, there's an example near me which is sort of interesting in terms of of what they're going through. You know, obviously Middlesbrough were a Premier League team for a, for a long time. They batted above their weight, um, produced some you know produced some fantastic players. You can see in uh, you know whether it's Stuart Downing or, or or Johnson or you know slightly lesser Catamole and David Weeter, but they also. Um, have produced people like James Morrison and and Chris Brunt at West Brom, um, Danny Graham scoring a lot of goals at Watford, and he had to go off on a you know on a journey to Carlisle and other places before actually um, you know developing enough to sort of play in the Championship. And obviously all of those players would now walk into the Middlesbrough team. Um, they've they've gone through a horrific season and they've got tough times ahead, and they're going to have to reduce their wage bill from £20 million this season, which is very large, to £6 million next season, just to kind of keep their heads above water. But at the same time, because they've invested in their in their academy, about seven, I think it was about seven of their players who played at the weekend came through the academy, and they've got an advantage because they can, they've, they've got such a sort of good pool of local talent coming through. Now, that maybe won't be enough for them to get back into the Premier League or get promotion, but they've got a head start because they've taken their time to sort of invest in that um, in that, in that side of the, of the club. And you, you, you kind of like more clubs to have 
the sort of the wit, but also the time and the money to, to do the same thing. Wait, George, this is inside there. They have to reduce their wage bill from twenty million to to, to six million. C- yeah. c- can they not just go and and invoice uh, Gordon Strachan, make him pick up some of the tab for all those old Scottish guys he brought in? Well, they took they took a hell of a gamble. You know, they would they would admit that themselves. They already went for it in the summer, and they went sort of down completely down the wrong. Uh, down the wrong road, unfortunately. You know, for them, they brought in. You know, they did bring in uh, Scottish players. I mean, I know what Strachan was trying to do. It was to go for experience and, and win also, the SPL. And well, you know, cheap, cheap, but players that he thought were hungry um, because they would have something to prove. Relatively low wages, although very high wages for the championship. Um, if you look at people like Chris Boyd and McManus and Scott McDonald and people like that, and it just hasn't it just hasn't worked. It, it hasn't worked at all. So they're they're going to have to go back to square one and and look look at the kids again. Okay, enough. Uh, uh, that just concludes our brief Middlesbrough uh, uh, Strachan interlude. Uh, but no, no, I asked you about. It. Um, we have all this TV money. Can we use some of it to incentivize clubs to do things that would be desirable for the English game and, and ultimately England? And maybe one of those things is, you know, if you give more playing time to you know the next David Weeder rather than you know then go out and give yet another contract to a 35 or 36 year old guy who might well cost more money and won't be part of uh, um, of England's future. Why are we so obsessed with England's future? I mean, I don't see why we should tell he's a, he's a, he's another I don't see why we who should... hates the England team. Calkin, you're the only England fan here. You realise that? No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Tom no, I mean, no, I'm not team. an England fan. What? <laughs> Am oh. I? Uh, what, what have I said that's pro-England? You did say before that you wanted the England team to do well. I'm really going to bother oh, come on. That's not, exact, that that's not exactly nailing my colours to the mask saying I'm going to get a Union Jack tattooed on my forehead and, um, you know, whatever. Tom, please continue your anti-England rant. <laughs> well, the England team is always in the top ten teams in the world, and the rest of that, whether it progresses any further in tournaments, is just down to the manager. I think uh, I don't think we should be become obsessed with telling clubs what they can and can't do. If if they want to play a 36-year-old, then why not? It's always going to be the interests of clubs to develop young players, and we've seen Premier League. Uh, clubs getting their tentacles far more deeply into this and developing yeah, school programs champion, uh, championship clubs as well like Watford have got extremely extensive and ambitious uh, youth development programs it's always going to be in the club's interest to find a couple of young talents who they can then develop play or sell on for vast profits so uh, I don't see any fundamental problems with the system Tom, Tom makes two very good points firstly um, we only care about England once every two or three months certainly once every two years four years there isn't a will i don't think uh, in football at large to uh, to sort of change things so deeply um you know we you know we care about it when it suits us but the rest of the time we put it on the back burner and care what the what our clubs are doing. Secondly, whatever we do, England are only ever going to get to the quarterfinals. So, <laughs> Mr. Negativity again. Okay, how about some quick hits? Stoke put Chelsea through the ringer and probably deserved more than a point. Matt, is it just about the Champions League now for Ancelotti? And since we haven't heard your personal verdict on Torres just yet, when, if ever, is he going to regain his mojo? Uh, I think it's been about the Champions League for Ancelotti for since Christmas, really, which is why this is such a huge, huge week coming up. 
and after Torres, he's going to be back in the starting lineup against United, I think. Um, but he still seems to be playing from memory for me, and I don't think it'll be till next season at the earliest, if, if ever, if he if he comes back to the player he was. Newcastle hosts Wolverhampton Wanderers and romped a 4-1 win. George, even without Andy Carroll, Newcastle are still carefree in mid-table. Are any of the anti-Pardew brigade eating humble pie, or does it really not have much to do with Pards at all? Well, firstly, mid-table is anything but carefree in the Premier League this season. And, you know, before their very, very good win over Wolves, they had lost fairly horribly at Stoke a couple of weeks before and um, had only won one in ten games. So, big relief, big relief to get that result on Saturday. They can start now looking up rather than down, but um, their position in the league is secure, but um, not much else. And it's all down to Alan Pardew. They were 12th when they sacked Chris Hewton. They're ninth now. Ha! Chris Hewton. Fraud. Pardew's much better, clearly. Tottenham Hotspur warmed up for their trip to the Bernabeu by drawing nil-nil at Wigan. Uh, Tom, Spurs were extremely dull. Uh, was Redknapp saving Crouch, Lennon and Cranchar for the Champions League? Or should Tottenham fans be worried? I think they should be worried. Spurs looked like they were wading through wet concrete for most of this game. Crouch came on near the end, missed a couple of chances, Lennon as well. Uh, they looked really weary, Spurs. Of course, they had their minds on the big game against Real Madrid, but uh, without Van der Vaart playing well, as he hasn't done for a couple of perhaps weeks and months now, I'm not sure who's getting the goals for Spurs. Perhaps it'll be different in Europe, but I fear that uh, I fear that Real will beat them. Gab, one for you. Jose Mourinho's home league unbeaten streak came to an end on Saturday night. Please place the nine-year-plus sequence in historical context for us. Well, you're asking for historical context there, Tom. And I, I think a streak like this, in some ways, it, it doesn't really tell you, uh, it, in one way it doesn't really tell you much, because frankly, he lost plenty of home games in those nine years, because he's only human, and, and it's normal. He just didn't lose them in the league. But what it does tell you is that, you know, in the seven full seasons of management, he won the league six times, um, probably won't win it this year, uh, but when you win leagues, it's often based on not dropping points at home, and, and that's what he's done. That's all we've got time for today. But remember, you can go to www.thetimes.co.uk. You'll find your news, your gossip, your analysis, your web chats. Mine is every Monday. Then you can also hear Ollie Kay and Patty Barkley and Graham Spears on different days of the week. And you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm on there, at Marcotti. Tom, what's your Twitter handle? At Tom.Times. At Tom.Times. There you go. Nice and snappy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.